9. W. Bobby. What think you of Punch's cabinet? Peel. Why? Really? I did not think the country contained so much state talent. Punch. That's the narrowness of your philosophy. If you were to look with an enlarged, a thinking mind, you'd soon perceive that the distance was not so great from Street James's to Street Giles's from the House of Commons to the House of Correction. Well, do you accept my list? Peel. Excuse me. My dear Punch. I must first try my own. When if that fails Punch, you'll try mine. That's a bargain. Punch's pencilings. Mumber I.I.I. A fair offer in compliance with my usual practice. I send you this letter, containing a trifling biographical sketch, and an offer of my literary services. I don't suppose you will accept them. Treating me as for 43 years past all the journals of this empire have done, for I have offered my contributions to them all all. It was in the year 1798, that escaping from a French prison that of Toulon, where I had been condemned to the hulks for forgery I say, from a French prison, but to find myself incarcerated in an English dungeon fraudulent bankruptcy, implicated in swindling transactions, falsification of accounts, and contempt of court, I began to amuse my hours of imprisonment by literary composition. I sent in that year my apology for the Corsican, relative to die murder of Captain Wright, to the late Mr. Perry, of the Morning Chronicle, preparing an answer to the same in the Times Journal, but as the apology was not accepted though the argument of it was quite clear, and much to my credit, so neither was the answer received a sublime piece, Mr. Punch, an unanswerable answer, in the year 1799, I made an attempt on the journal of the late Reverend Mr. Thomas Hill, then fast sinking in years, but he had ill-treated my father, pursuing him before Mr. Justice Fielding for robbing him of a snuff-box, in the year 1740, and he continued his resentment towards my father's and offending son, I was cruelly rebuffed by Mr. Hill, as indeed I have been by every other newspaper proprietor, no, there is not a single periodical print which has appeared for 43 years since, to which I did not make some application, I have by me essays and fugitive pieces in 14 trunks, 7 carpet bags of trifles in verse, and a portmanteau with best part of an epic poem, which it does not become me to praise, I have no less than 495 acts of dramatic composition, which have been rejected even by the Syncretic Association, such as the set that for 43 years has been made against a man of genius by an envious literary world. Are you going to follow in its wake? Ha! 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 No less than 7,300 times the exact number of my applications have I asked that question. Think well before you reject me. Mr. Punch think well and at least listen to what I have to say. It is this, I am not wishing any longer to come forward with tragedies, epics, essays, or original compositions. I am old now morose in temper, troubled with poverty, jaundice, imprisonment, and habitual indigestion. I hate everybody, and, with the exception of gin and water, everything. I know every language, both in the known and in known worlds. I am profoundly ignorant of history or indeed of any other full science, but had a smattering of all, I am excellently qualified to judge and lash the vices of the age, having experienced, I may almost say, every one of them in my own person, the immortal and immoral good, that celebrated sage of Germany, has made exactly the same confession, I had a few and curious collection of Latin and Greek quotations, and what is the result I draw from this, this simple one that, of all men living, I am the most qualified to be a critic, 
and hereby offer myself to your notice in that capacity. Recollect, I am always at home fleet prison. Letter L fourth staircase, Popper's ward for a guinea, and a bottle of Hodges cordial. I will do anything, I will, for that sum, cheerfully abuse my own father or mother. I can smash Shakespeare, I can prove Milton to be a driveler, or the contrary, but, for preference, take, as I have said, the abusive line. Send me over then, Mr. P. Any person's works whose sacrifice you may require, I will cut him up, sir, I will flay him, flagellate him, finish him. You had better not send me unless you had a private grudge against the authors. When I am of course at your service you had better not send me any works of real merit, for I am infallibly prepared to show that there is not any merit in them. I have not been one of the great and read for forty-three years, without turning my misfortunes to some account, sir. I know how to make use of my adversity. I have been accused, and rightfully too, of swindling, forgery, and slander. I have been many times kicked downstairs. I am totally deficient in personal courage, but, though I can't fight, I can rail. I, and well, send me somebody's works, and you'll see how I will treat them. Will you have personal scandal? I am your man. I will swear away the character, not only of an author but of his whole family the female members of it especially. Do you suppose I care for being beaten? Bah! I no more care for a flogging than a boy does at Eton, and only let the flogger beware I will be a match for him. I warrant you, the man who beats me is a coward, for he knows I won't resist. Let the dastard strike me then, or leave me, as he likes, but, for a choice, I prefer abusing women, who have no brothers or guardians, for, regarding a thrashing with indifference. I am not such a ninny as to prefer it, and here you have an accurate account of my habits, history, and disposition, farewell, sir, if I can be full to you, command me, if you insert this letter, you will, of course, pay for it, upon my order to that effect, I say this, lest an unprincipled wife and children should apply to you for money, they are in a state of starvation, and will scruple at no dastardly stratagem to procure money. I spent every shilling of Mrs. Jenkinson's property 45 years ago. I am, sir, your humble servant, Diogenes J.N.K.I.N.S.O.N., son of the late Ephraim Jenkinson, well known to Dr. O. Goldsmith, the Ref. Primrose, D.D. Vicar of Wakefield, Dr. Johnson, of Dictionary Celebrity, and other literary gentlemen of the last century. We gratefully accept the offer of Mr. Diogenes Jenkinson whose qualifications render him admirably adapted to fill a situation which Mr. John Kitch has most enhandsomely resigned, doubtlessly stimulated thereto by the probable accession to power of his old friends the Tories. We like a man who dares to own himself a Jenkinson. Education Fine Arts, His Royal Highness Prince Albert, who has occasionally displayed a knowledge and much liking for the fine arts, sometimes since expressed an intimation to display his ability in sketching landscape from nature. The royal academicians immediately assembled en masse, and as they wisely imagined that it would be impolitic in them to let an opportunity slip of not being the very foremost in the direction of matters connected with royalty and their profession, offered, or rather thrust forward, their services to arrange the landscape according to the established rules of art laid down by the self-elected body of the professors of the beauties of nature, St. James's Park, within the enclosure having been hinted as the nearest and most suitable spot for the royal essay. The academicians were in active service at an early hour of the appointed day, some busied themselves in making foreground objects, 
by pulling down trees and heaping stones together from the neighboring macadamized stores, others were most fancifully spotting the trees with whitewash and other mixtures, in imitation of moss and lichens. The classical Howard was awfully industrious in grouping some swans, together with several kind-hearted ladies from the adjoining purlieus of Tophil Street, who had been most willingly secured as models for water nymphs. The most rapidly engaged gentleman was Turner, who, despite the remonstrances of his colleagues upon the expense attendant upon his whimsical notions, would persist in making the grass more natural by emptying large buckets of treacle and mustard about the ground. Another old gentleman, whose name we cannot at this moment call to a recollection, spent the whole of his time in placing a little man a-fishing, that having been for many years his fixed belief as the only illustration of the pastoral and picturesque. In the meantime, to their utter disappointment, however, his royal highness quietly strolled with his sketchbook into another quarter. A barrister's card, Mr. Briefless begs to inform the public and his friends in general, that he has open chambers in Pump Court, and be pleased to go down the area steps. In consequence of the general pressure for money, Mr. Briefless has determined to do business at the following very reduced scale of prices, and flatters himself that having been very long a member of a celebrated debating society, he will be found to possess the qualities so essential to a legal advocate. Motions of cause, success, 60, usual charge, 10s, 5d, and defended actions, from 15s, usually from 2l, 2s, actions for breach of promise from 1l, 1s, usually from 5l, 5s, to 500l, ditto with appeals to the feelings, from 3L, 3S, ditto, ditto, very superior, 5L, 5S, ditto, with tirades against the law of highly approved mixture, 3L, 3S, and B, to the three last items there is an addition of five shillings for a reply, should one be rendered requisite, Mr. Briefless begs to call attention to the fact, that feeling the injustice that is done to the public by the system of refreshers, he will in all cases, where he is retained, take out his refreshers in brandy, rum, gin, ale, or porter, injured innocence carefully defended, oppression and injustice punctually persecuted, a liberal allowance to attorneys and solicitors, a few old briefs wanted as dummies, anyone having a second-hand coachman's wig to dispose of may hear of a purchaser, the wife catchers, a legend of my uncle's boots, ah, sure a pair was never seen, more justly formed, chapter I jack, said my uncle met to me one evening, as we sat facing each other, on either side of the old oak table, over which, for the last thirty years, my worthy kinsman's best stories had been told, Jack, said he, do you remember the pair of yellow-topped boots that hung upon the peg in the hall, before you went to college, certainly, uncle, they were called by everyone, the wife catchers, well, Jack, Many a title has been given more undeservedly many a rich heiress they were the means of bringing into our family, but they are no more, Jack. I lost the venerated relics just one week after your poor dear aunt departed this life. My uncle drew out his bandana handkerchief and applied it to his eyes, but I cannot be positive to which of the family relics this tribute of affectionate recollection was paid. Peace be with their souls, said I solemnly. By what fatal chance did our old friend slip off the peg? Alas, replied my uncle, it was a melancholy accident, and as I perceive you take an interest in their fate, I will relate it to you, but first fill your glass, Jack, you need not be afraid of this stuff, it never saw the face of a gauger, come, no skylights, 
tea's as mild as new milk, there's not a headache in a dog's head of it. To encourage me by his example, my uncle grasped the huge black case bottle which stood before him, and began to manufacture a tumbler of punch according to Father Tom's popular receipt. Whilst he is engaged in this pleasing task, I will give my readers a pen and ink sketch of my respected relative. Fancy a man declining from his fiftieth year, but fresh, vigorous, and with a greenness in his age that might put to the blush some of our modern hawk-bed-reared youths, with the best of whom he could cross a country on the back of his favorite hunter, Cruz Keen, and when the day's sport was over, could put a score of them under the aforementioned oak table which, by the way, was frequently the only one of the company that kept its legs upon these occasions of Hibernian hospitality. I think I behold him now, with his open, benevolent brow, thinly covered with gray hair, his full blue eye and florid cheek, which glowed like the sunny side of a golden pippin that the winter's frost had ripened without shriveling. But as he has finished the admixture of his punch, I will leave him to speak for himself. You know, Jack, said he, after gulping down nearly half the newly mixed tumbler, by way of sample, you know that our family can lay no claim to antiquity, in fact, our pedigree ascends no higher, according to the most authentic records, than Sean Duffy, my grandfather, who rented a small patch of ground on the sea coast, which was such a barren, and profitable spot, that it was then, and is to this day, called the Devil's Half Acre, and well it merited the name for if poor Sean was to break his heart at it, he never could get a better crop than thistles or ragweed off it, but though the curse of sterility seemed to have fallen on the land, fortune, in order to recompense Sean for nature's niggardliness, made the caverns and creeks of that portion of the coast which bounded his farm towards the sea the favorite resort of smugglers, Sean, in the true spirit of Christian benevolence, was reputed to have favored those enterprising traders in their industry, by assisting to convey their cargoes into the interior of the country. It was on one of those expeditions, about five o'clock on a summer's morning, that a gauger unluckily met my grandfather carrying a bale of tobacco on his back. Here my uncle paused in his recital, and leaning across the table till his mouth was closed to my ear, said, in a confidential whisper, Jack, do you consider killing a gauger murder? Undoubtedly, sir, you do, he replied, nodding his head significantly. Then heaven forgive my poor grandfather. However, it can't be helped now. The gauger was found dead, with an ugly fracture in his skull, the next day, and, what was rather remarkable, Sean Duffy began to thrive in the world from that time forward. He was soon able to take an extensive farm, and, in a little time, began to increase in wealth and importance. But it is not so easy as some people imagine to shake off the remembrance of what we have been and it is still more difficult to make our friends oblivious on that point, particularly if we have ascended in the scale of respectability. Thus it was, that in spite of my grandfather's weighty purse, he could not succeed in prefixing Mr. to his name, find he continued for a long time to be known as plain Sean Duffy, of the devil's half acre. It was undoubtedly a most diabolic address, but Sean was a man of considerable strength of mind, as well as of muscle, and he resolved to become a gentleman. Despite this damning reminiscence, vulgarity, it is said, sticks to a man like a limpet to a rock. Sean knew the best way to rub it off would be by mixing with good society. Dress, he always understood, was the best passport he could bring for admission within the pale of gentility. Accordingly, he boldly attempted to pass the boundary of plebeianism, by appearing one fine morning at the fair of Dalybristan in a flaming red waistcoat, 
an elegant orline hat, a pair of buckskin breeches, and a new pair of yellow top boots, which, with the assistance of large plated spurs, and a heavy silver mounted whip, took the shine out of the smartest squireens at the fair, a beaver hat. Fortunately for the success of my grandfather's invasion of the aristocratic rights, it occurred on the eve of a general election, and as he had the command of six or eight votes in the county, his interest was a matter of some importance to the candidates, be that as it may, it was with feelings little short of absolute dismay, that the respectable inhabitants of the extensive village of Ballybreestown beheld the metamorphosed tenant of the devil's half-acre, walking arm in arm down the street with Sir Denise Daly, the popular candidate, at all events, this public and familiar promenade had the effect of establishing Mr. John Duffy's dubious gentility, he was invited to dine the same day by the attorney, and on the following night the apothecary proposed his admission as a member of the Ballybreestown liberal reading room. It was even whispered that Bill Costigan, who went twice a year to Dublin for goods, was trying to strike up a match between Sean, who was a hale widower, and his aunt, an ancient spinster, who was set down by report as a fortune of £700. Negotiations were actually set on foot, and several preliminary bottles of potheen had been drunk by the parties concerned, when, unfortunately, in the high road to happiness, my poor grandfather caught a fever, and popped off, to the inexpressible grief of the expectant bride, who declared her intention of dying in the virgin state, to which resolution, there being no dissentient voice, it was carried nem, con, thus died the illustrious founder of our family, but happy was it for posterity that the yellow-topped boots did not die along with him, these, with the red waistcoat, the leather breeches, and plated spurs, remained to raise the fortunes of our house to a higher station, the waistcoat has been long since numbered with the waistcoats before the flood, the buckskins, made of sterner stuff, stood the wear and tear of the world for a length of time, but at last were put out of commission, while the boots, more fortunate or tougher than their leathern companions, endured more than forty years of actual service through all the ramifications of our extensive family. In this time they had suffered many dilapidations, but by the care and ingenuity of the family cobbler, they were always kept in tolerable order, and performed their duty with great credit to themselves, until an unlucky accident deprived me of my old and valued friends, poor John Bull, that knowing jockey Sir Robert Peel has stated that the old charger, John Bull, island from overfeeding, growing restive and unmanageable kicking up his heels, and playing sundry tricks extremely unbecoming in an animal of his advanced age and many infirmities. To keep down this playful spirit, Sir Robert proposes that a new burthen be placed upon his back in the shape of a house tax, pledging himself that it shall be heavy enough to effect the desired purpose. Commend us to these Tories they are rare fellows for a strong resemblance. Sir Edward Lindbollewer has frequently been accused of identifying himself with the heroes of his novels. His late treatment at Lincoln leaves no doubt of his identity with a prudent change. So Lord John Russell is married, said one of the Carlton Club loungers to Colonel Sithorpe the other morning. Yes, replied that gallant Dunster, his lordship is at length convinced that his talents will be better employed in the management of the home than the colonial department. The above bridge navy, an article intended for the quarterly review but fallen into the hands of punch, by hours of the starting of the boats of the Iron Steamboat Company, London, 1841, I.I., notes of a passenger on board the Bachelor, during a voyage from Old Swan Pier, London Bridge, to the Red House, Battersea, C.A.D.N.A.C.H., 1840, I.I.I., Rule Britannia, a song, London, 
1694, Ivy, two years before the mast, Cunningham, London, the checks issued by the London and Westminster Steamboat Company, C.A.D.B.A.R. runs and fry, at a time when the glory of England stands like a door shutting or opening either way entirely upon a pivot, when the hostile attitude of enemies abroad threatens not more, nor perhaps less, than the antagonistic posture of foes at home at such a time there is at least a yet and again hitherto unexplored mine of satisfaction in the refreshing fact, that the Thames is fostering in his bosom an entirely new navy, calculated to bid defiance to the foe should he ever come in the very heart and lungs, the very bowels and vitals, the very liver and lungs, or, in one emphatic word, the very pluck of the metropolis. There is not a more striking instance of the remarkable connection between little very little causes, and great undeniably great effects, than the extraordinary origin, rise, progress, germ, development, and maturity, of the above bridge navy, the bringing of which prominently before the public who may owe to that navy at some future we hope so incalculably distant as never to have a chance of arriving day, the salvation of their lives, the protection of their hearths, the inviolability of their street doors, and the security of their properties, sprung from a little knot of we wish we could say, jolly young, though truth compels us to proclaim far from jolly, and decidedly old, watermen, the above bridge navy, whose shattered and infrequented wherries were always in want of a fair, may now boast of covering the bosom of the Thames with its fleet of steamers, thus, as it were, bringing the substantial piers of London Bridge within a stone's throw if we may be allowed to pitch it so remarkably strong of the once remote regions of the beach, and annihilating, as it were, the distance between somber Southwark and bloom-breathing Battersea, Chelsea, the establishment of this little fleet may well be a proud reflection to those shareholders who, if they had no dividend in specie, had another species of dividend in the swelling gratification with which the heart of every one must be inflated, as, on seeing one of the noble craft dart with the tide through the arches supposing, of course, it does not strike against them of Westminster Bridge, he is enabled mentally to exclaim, there goes some of my capital, but if the pride of the proprietor if he can be called a proprietor who derives nothing from his property be great, what must be the feelings of the captain to whose guidance the bark is committed? We can scarcely conceive a nobler subject of contemplation than one of those once indigent not to say absolutely done-up watermen, perched proudly on the summit of a paddle box, and thinking as he very likely does, particularly when the vessel swags and sways from side to side of the height he stands upon, it may be, and has been, urged by some, that the Thames is not exactly the place to form the naval character, that a habit of braving the dangers of the deep is hardly to be acquired where one may walk across at low tide, on account of the water being so confoundedly shallow, but these are cavillings which the lofty and truly patriotic mind will at once and indignantly repudiate. The humble urchin, whose sole duty consists in throwing out a rope to each pier, and holding hard by it while the vessel stops, may one day be destined for some higher service, and where is the English bosom that will not be happy thought? that the dirty lad below, whose exclamation of, ease her, stop her, one turn ahead, may one day be destined to give the word of command on the quarterdeck, and receive, in the shape of a cannonball, a glorious full stop to his honorable services, looking as we do at the above bridge navy, in a large and national light, we are not inclined to go into critical details, such as are to be met with, passing, in the shrewd and amusing work of, the passenger on board the bachelor, there may be something in the objection, 
that there is no getting comfortably into one of these boats when one desires to go by it. It may be true, that a boy's neglecting, to hold, sufficiently, hard, may keep the steamer vibrating and sliding about, within a yard of the pier, without approaching it. But these are small considerations, and we are not sure that the necessity of keeping a sharp lookout, and jumping aboard at precisely the right time, does not keep up that national ingenuity which is not the least valuable part of the English character. In the same light are we disposed to regard the occasional running aground of these boats, which, at all events, is a fine practical lesson of patience to the passengers. The collisions are not so much to our taste, and these, we think, doleful to a certain extent for inculcating caution, should be resorted to as rarely as possible. We have not gone into the system of signals and hand motions, if we may be allowed to use a legal term, by which the whole of this navy is regulated, but these, and other details, may, perhaps, be the subject of some future article for we are partial to correspondence. Newcastle Street, July, 1841. Mr. Punch, little did I think when I'd been agaping and staring at you in the streets, that I should ever happily to you for Augustus. Isn't that a shame that people puts advertisements in the papers for a house made for a lark? as it puts all the poor servants out of place into a dreadful situation, as I always gets a peep at the paper on the landing as I takes it up for breakfast, I was in thought tonight enough to see a para thingy me bob for a house made, wanted in a nobleman's family, on course, a young woman has a right to better herself if she can, so I makes up my mind at once has I when he has six spoons a year, and finds my own tea and sugar I makes up my mind to ask for a day out, which, as the cold mudding was just enough for master and missus without me, was granted me. I soon clears up the kitchen, and goes upstairs to clean mice. I puts on my silk grown and apple gown, and my lace pillow rim. Likewise my himitash and vermin tippet, give me by my cousin Harry, who keeps company with me on hot dinner days. Also my Tuscan bonnet, parasol, and black bag, and I takes my forth to South Street. But what was my felines? When? On ringing the bell, a boy answered the dog, with two rows of brar speeds down his jacket. Can I speak a word with the footman? Says I in my just manner. I'm footman, says he. Then the cook, says I, we aren't no cook, says he. No cook, says I almost putrefied with surprise. You must be jokin', jokin', says he. Do you know who lives here? Not exactly, says I, Lord Milburn, says he. I thought I should have dropped on the step. As a glimmer in of the douche acts my mind. Then you don't want no house maid? Says I, house maid. Says the boy, go to blazes. What could he mean by, no, I've told fifty on ye so this morning it's a oath. Then more shame of Lord Milborne to do it. Says I, he may want a place his of some day or other. Saying of which I boonst off the doorstep. With all the dignity I could command. Now, what I wants to know I'll and for I can't summons his lordship for my day out. Harry sighs, should I ever come in contract with Lord Milbourne? I'm due treating him with the silent contempt of years truly. A moving scene, the present occupants of the government premises in Downing Street, whose leases will expire in a few days, are busily employed packing up their small affairs before the new tenants come into possession. It is a pitiful sight to behold these poor people taking leave of their softly stuffed seats, their rocking chairs, their footstools, slippers, cushions and all those little official comforts of which they have been so cruelly deprived, that man must, indeed, be hard heart who would refuse to sympathize with their sorrows.
or to uplift his voice in the doleful wood chorus, when he hears the drama B.U.C.R.O.W. at S.A. Dealer's Wells, when, in a melodrama, the bride is placing her foot upon the first step of the altar, and Rufiano tears her away, far from the grasp of her lover, when a rich uncle in a farce dies to oblige a starving author in a garret, when, two rivals do allies with toasting forks, when such things are plotted and acted in the theatre, hypercritics murmur at their improbability, but compare them with the haps of the drama off the stage, and they become the veriest of commonplaces, this is a world of change, the French have invaded Algiers, British arms are doing mortal damage in the celestial empire, Poulet Thompson has gone over to Canada, and oh, wonder of wonders, Bastlis has removed to Sadler's Wells, the pyrotechnics of the former have gone on a visit to the hydraulics of the latter, the red fire of Bastlis has come in contact with the real water of the wells, yet, marvel superlative, the unnatural meeting has been successful there has not been a single hiss, what was the use of Sir Hugh Middleton bringing the new river to a head? or of Ken Jamie buying shares in the speculation on purpose to supply Sadler's wells with real water, if it is to be drained off from under the stage to make way for horses, shade of Dibden, ghost of Grimaldi, what would you have said in your day, to be sure you were guilty of pony races, they took place outside the theatre, but within the walls, in the very cellar of the aquatic temple, till now, never, we wonder ye do not rise up and pluck bright honor from the vasty deep of his own tank, Sawdust at Sadler's Wells. What next? Mr. Merriman, if McCready had been engaged for clown, and set down to sing, Hot Coblins, were Palmerston secured for Piero, or Lord Montiel for Jim Crow, who would have wondered, but to saddle the Wells with horses profanity and paralleled, spitefully predicting failure from this terrible declension of the drama, we went, in a mood intensely ill-natured, to a witness how the horse of the Pyrenees would behave himself at Sadler's Wells. From the piece so called we anticipated no amusement, we thought the regular company would make but sorry equestrians, and, like the king of Westphalia's hussars, would prove totally inefficient. From not being habituated to mount on horseback, happily we were mistaken, nothing could possibly go better than both the animals and the piece. The actors acquitted themselves manfully, even including the horses. The mysterious Arab threw no damp over the performances, for he was personated by Mr. Dry. The little Saracen was performed so well by Alpetti Ducro, that we longed to see more of him. The desperate battle fought by about sixteen supernumeraries at the pass of Castle Mora, was quite as sanguinary as ever, the combats were perfection the glory of the red fire was no wise dimmed. It was magic, yes, it was magic. Mr. Whittacombe was there, 